This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The first few days of the Trump administration's second year in office have been eventful with the government shutdown. Now that Washington is back to work, what's next? From trade to infrastructure, healthcare to immigration and more, there's a lot to talk about. And for that, we're joined by Alec Phillips, Chief U.S. Political Economist for Goldman Sachs Research. Alec, welcome back to the program. Thank you. So you were on this podcast in March of last year, and you were talking about what the Trump administration would try to accomplish during its first year, pass a tax bill, repeal the Affordable Care Act, the focus on immigration. What was most consistent and what surprised you with the legislation that's resulted since we spoke last? So I think the thing that was most consistent was that we did think coming into 2017 that the two most important priorities would be ACA, so health care, and then tax reform, and that you'd have these other things kind of after that that would be sort of second-tier priorities, infrastructure, which definitely turns out to have been, it seems like, a second-tier priority, some of the other smaller pieces of legislation around regulation and so on. What was not surprising is that they managed to get something done on both of those things. Clearly on tax, they got a lot done. And And you were bullish last year on their prospects for doing that pretty much consistently throughout the year. And at some point, it looked like the timing would slip, but they ended up getting it done more or less in the time frame you envisioned last year. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. If you just closed your eyes from basically March through November, we would have ended up where one would have expected. It was that period in the middle where healthcare just seemed to be taking longer and longer and longer, and everything got pushed back. And I think everybody during that period became more bearish on the prospects of tax reform. I guess I would just say that we, for almost all of that period, and full disclosure, there were like two weeks there where we had basically given up hope as well. But for almost all of that period, we figured there's no way that they can go through the next year without doing something on tax reform. So that wasn't that surprising. I mean, I would say what was surprising was, first on healthcare, that they weren't able to do at least a little bit more. I mean, we never expected them to repeal all of the ACA benefits, the Medicaid expansion, all of that stuff. But I would have thought that they would have done at least a little bit more than just repealing the individual mandate. And we'll see what happens. I mean, it's not necessarily over yet, but it does feel like it was you know, more incremental than most people would have expected, and certainly I would have expected. On tax, it's kind of the opposite. In many ways, it was a bigger reform than I would have expected. The overall size, like if you measure it over 10 years of the tax cut, was basically what we had penciled in at the beginning of last year. But there's more policy in there just than the lowering of the rates. Yeah. You had to be sort of skeptical that Congress could come through and in less than a year start the tax reform process and finish it. And that's a little bit unfair because there had been discussions over several years prior to that. But it was a fast process. The big policy debate didn't really start happening until the second half of the year. In the first half, we were sort of throwing around these different ideas, the border-adjusted tax and all of this other stuff. So it came together really quickly. And what was surprising to me was just how much, quote unquote, reform was really in there, particularly on the corporate side, but even on the individual. I mean, who would have thought that in the end they eliminated the state and local tax deduction for most people? 
And that's certainly not something I would have predicted at the beginning of last year. That was year. always thought to be one of those things you just really can't touch. It was a third rail, just yep. like mortgage interest, which is also, also capped I mean, a little been bit. capped a little bit. Yep. Yeah. So tax reform being the notable legislative success for President Trump so far, talk a little bit about how you and our economists look at that in terms of its impact on the economy and growth. We assume that in 2018 and then again in 2019, the overall tax bill – so taking the corporate piece, the individual piece, the sort of the pass-through small business piece, all this stuff together, will boost GDP by about three-tenths of a point this year and then another three-tenths next year. That reflects a couple of things. On the one hand, it reflects a bigger tax cut in the next couple of years than we would have thought going into it. So over the 10-year period, it was estimated to be a little bit less than a $1.5 trillion tax cut. But if you look at the effect in 2019, it's almost double that in terms of the, sort of the average annualized effect. It's almost $300 billion in 2019. So it's front-loaded. So it is front-loaded. And as a result, the boost to growth is a little bit larger than what we would have expected. With that said, some of that kind of overlaps with things that we would have expected to happen anyway. So as an example, companies can write off all of their CapEx on equipment and so on. Under the previous law, they could have done a lot of that anyway. And so some of these things, it's kind of a little bit of double counting. Overall, though, we think basically three-tenths of a point this year, three-tenths of a point next year. And we'll probably get some additional spending on top of that. So we think that the overall fiscal boost will be even a little bit larger than that. Longer run, there should be, we think, some positive effect just in terms of longer run growth, mainly from the corporate side, because if you're lowering the corporate rate from 35 down to 21, that does create a positive investment incentive. And also this full expensing provision will. So we do expect a modest positive benefit in terms of growth from the corporate tax cuts in particular and from capital investment. Emphasis on modest. We're basically in line with the Joint Tax Committee on that, which has also estimated a boost to CapEx, for instance, of a little bit less than 1% kind of over the long run. That's basically where we are as well. So modestly positive long-run effects offset later on by the fact that you're also going to have an increasing deficit as a result of this. But most of the effect, frankly, that we're focused on is just really in the next couple of years in terms of the boost to consumption out of this tax cut and then maybe the effects on corporate activity. Let's talk a little bit more about the deficit. Typically, at this point in the economic cycle, with the strength we're seeing in the economy, you'd see the deficit begin to come down a little right. bit and debt shrink as a percentage of GDP. What does the tax bill mean for the borrowing needs of the federal government and your projections on the deficit? Well, the point you made is exactly right, which is that with an unemployment rate of around 4% and probably declining below 4%, you would expect the deficit at this point in the cycle to be pretty small. Instead, we're above 3% right now, and our estimate is that we're headed to 5% of GDP federal budget deficit for next year, and then going a little bit beyond that in the following years. So that's definitely a different place than we've been in the past, and I'd say it's essentially unprecedented going back several decades to be at a 5% of GDP deficit at this point in the economic cycle. What it means for borrowing is that we're basically going to, we think, double borrowing in the coming fiscal year compared to the one that recently ended. And that's the product of a couple of different things. One, the debt limit. So Treasury typically borrows a little bit less when the debt limit is in play because of the cash balance and all of this stuff that you remember well, I'm sure. The other is the fact that the Fed 
is running off its balance sheet, which means that the treasury is going to have to borrow more from somebody else. And so when you take those two things together and then you add the tax cut and also spending and some other things that we haven't talked about on top of that, we think borrowing from the public is going to go from basically around $500 billion in the last fiscal year to a little bit over a trillion in this fiscal year and then increase a little bit more in 2019, 2020. So it's a big change. So a lot of activity in the treasury markets. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The markets room a will lot be busy. to absorb. The administration's focused, obviously, on its 2018 legislative agenda. What are the short-term issues that need to be tackled? At a certain point here, probably later in February, maybe at latest in March, they're going to have to address a bunch of different issues. They've got, obviously, the near-term spending question. They've also got spending caps for 2018 and 2019. These are left over from the fiscal deal that was done several years ago around the debt limit. Both parties would basically like to raise the caps. It's going to probably add about $100 billion to spending per year to do this over the next couple of years. But there's a question on distribution, defense versus non-defense. This is sort of a standard question that comes up in these things. Second issue, and in some ways the more important one, is going to be the debt limit. The debt limit was basically punted last fall as a result of a small fiscal deal in September. And now we're back at it, probably needing to raise it by March. And so it looks like we may see a deal that involves raising spending caps, suspending the debt limit, and then, of course, something happening on the immigration issue. Because we have the DACA program, which has, in essence, a deadline in early March when some people will start to run out on their work permits and will be unable to renew those. And so that's effectively sort of a deadline on that program. So you've got a lot of different things here in Q1 that need to get settled. And it seems right now like they're going to get settled in one really big negotiation that ends up including spending, the debt limit, immigration, possibly children's health insurance if it doesn't get dealt with this time, and a whole bunch of other smaller things. Now, last fall, when they did reach a short-term deal, the president actually surprised people in his own party by reaching out and working with Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader Schumer. What are the prospects for that this time? They feel lower to me. I think it's going to be harder for the president to do a deal on this set of issues than it was on those issues. If we look back to the deal that was done, it was basically the debt limit, uh, short-term spending extension, and then hurricane relief. It wasn't that hard of a Those deal. Those are not terribly partisan issues. Yeah, it wasn't that deep, hard of a deal to divides. do. deep divides, yeah. This time, if the fight is basically over immigration, which is ultimately and politically at the core of the debate, it seems like a much harder thing to do, not only because of the divide, but particularly because with the upcoming midterm election, it's not clear to me right now that congressional Democrats are going to want to do that deal. I mean, this is a very attractive political issue for them. It polls very well. Most public opinion polling shows that most of the public is on the sort of the Democratic side of this DACA issue. And so I would think that they'd be hesitant to do a deal. What would it take for Congress to put an immigration policy, a new policy on the president's desk? You know, it doesn't seem like it should really take that much, actually. It feels like there's a lot of support for that kind of a bipartisan deal in the Senate. Probably the majority of the Senate supports. Just the problem is it's not necessarily a majority of either party. To me, it feels like they are going to have to get a deal, particularly on DACA, and basically at least reinstate that program, which the courts have been looking at doing anyway, potentially. There was already one district court ruling and then maybe provide a little bit more certainty beyond that. And then on the other side, 
what people would call border security. So maybe not a wall. I mean, the wall concept is almost symbolic at this point anyway, but more enforcement for border security to trade off against DACA. It seems like a deal that should be able to come together. One issue where the president has a lot of leeway is trade. Talk a little bit about the president's plans there. NAFTA negotiations are taking place at the end of this month, January. What does President Trump hope to achieve, and how likely is it that the United States will actually go ahead and withdraw from NAFTA? It's not entirely clear what the president wants to achieve on NAFTA. We know what has been requested or put out in terms of the U.S. side demands. Probably the most important economically is what's called rules of origin, the idea that imports from Canada and Mexico, particularly in the auto sector, would have to have more NAFTA country content and then, more surprisingly, more U.S. content in particular. And conceptually, that's kind of a hard thing to get your head around because if you're doing a free trade deal, it's hard to say that your trading partner needs to actually be exporting to you things that have your own content in them. And so that's going to be a really hard thing to resolve. The other thing that looks like essentially a non-starter is this idea of a five-year sunset. So they've proposed something where every five years they would review the agreement, and if they can't come to a new deal, the agreement would terminate. There probably is some flexibility on some of these things, and I should say there are a bunch of other smaller issues or not even such small issues that I haven't mentioned as well. But I think in general, there is some flexibility on some of these things. So rules of origin and domestic content requirements, certainly a change there is possible. The question is whether you can go as far as what the administration is seeking. On the five-year sunset, maybe you don't do a sunset, maybe you just do a periodic review. So there is potentially a middle ground here, but I think the bigger question is whether the Trump administration is actually seeking that middle ground or whether they put out these conditions in order to move the process forward without ever really getting a deal. So our view on NAFTA has been that the notice of intent to withdraw, which is a mouthful, under NAFTA, the president has to give notice before actually withdrawing, has to be at least six months. So my view has been, well, maybe the president does give this notice as, as a, a negotiating as a tactic, negotiating basically, tactic yep. but doesn't actually withdraw. So, I mean, my take has been the odds of a notice coming and sort of the next big announcement, probably pretty high, but, but that but the actual withdrawal yeah. by the end of this year, let's say, is probably pretty low. I will say one thing, which is it does feel that the tone around NAFTA has changed a little bit, and it seems to me that if you were to take the two big trade issues in play right now, one is NAFTA and then the other is China, it does feel to me like we're shifting a little bit away from the pressure on NAFTA and a little bit toward China. That doesn't mean that we couldn't have action on both, but it feels like the emphasis is moving a little bit. Talk a little bit more about that. You and your outlook for 2018 talk about trade frictions with Canada, obviously, Mexico, our NAFTA partners, China and Korea are likely to rise substantially over the next few months. Why is that? In some ways, it's just almost coincidence or maybe just timing. There are a bunch of things that were in play last year that are now finally coming to fruition. In the middle of last year, the administration launched investigations on steel, aluminum, solar panels, washing machines. You go down the list. A bunch of those deadlines are coming up. The second reason, and to me the more important one, is that it does also look like the administration is trying to make some announcements on trade. And so the one to point out there would be regarding China. 
something known as the Section 301 investigation. Uh, it's regarding intellectual property practices in China. A lot of U.S. companies have complained about this. They launched an investigation last August. The findings weren't really due until this August, but it looks like they're going to accelerate that process. Presumably, the reason they would be doing that is to set the tone for the year on trade in the U.S.-China dialogue there. So it does look like we're going to see some important restrictions potentially imposed on Chinese corporate investment in the U.S. as part of that process, and then possibly also on activities of U.S. companies in China and the policies there. Big question is whether there are tariffs involved as well. It's unclear, but it's a possibility. Right now, the way I would look at it is we all know about NAFTA. We all know that there's a risk of at least, you know, an announcement of withdrawal, even if withdrawal doesn't happen. But that's a well-understood issue at this point. And I think from a market perspective and public perspective, corporate perspective, it's basically acknowledged. Whereas on the China piece, to me, it feels like that's more of an emerging issue and one that people need to start paying more attention to. Because for the last year, we've been hearing about this, but then nothing really happened. It feels like maybe something is finally going to happen. The administration obviously has turned to infrastructure. There's a lot of talk about the president unveiling a large infrastructure proposal. What are you hearing about that? What might we expect on that front? That's an area that always seems like it might get bipartisan support, but it's tricky. The big change that we've seen is that early in the administration last year, the White House seemed to be more focused on public-private partnerships and involving the public sector and doing something really different. Now, it sounds like while they're certainly proposing or seemed likely to propose something new, it does have a flavor of expanding some existing programs. I don't want to say it's more of the same because it does look like they're going to try to create some new incentives, but it sounds like it's less radical than what was thought about a year ago, which maybe isn't surprising as you kind of work your way into the administration. In terms of what they're going to propose, the numbers are still big. The discussion has been around $200 billion of federal money spread over several years, matched with a lot of money coming from some other place, maybe more likely now state and local governments as opposed to the private sector. We would wonder whether state and local governments are really going to be in a position to actually provide that much new incremental money on top of what they're already doing given their own fiscal issues, and particularly in light of what's just happened in tax reform. In Texas, yeah, where some of them are going to feel the pain. Exactly. So I'm not too optimistic that that plan is going to be able to move forward. I would expect something to be proposed, a possibility of something coming out pre-State of the Union, if not after the State of the Union. But I think it's going to be a long slog in Congress, particularly because I think a lot of Republicans, while they are sympathetic to infrastructure as a concept, may not want to support any kind of new revenue to finance it. I think Democrats, to the extent that they're proposed spending cuts to finance some of this, that just seems like basically a non-starter, depending on where the cuts would be. So it just seems like it's one of those things that could be a very interesting 2019 issue, but feels like it's probably not going to get off the ground in 2018, as far as I can tell. Let's get back to health care. The Affordable Care Act repeal failed last year. Will Republicans try again this year, or will they focus on just making adjustments, smaller tweaks like what they did last year to the bill? I don't see how they can really take another stab at it. In order to do that, number one, they would have to have a reason to think that the outcome is going to be different. My own sense is that the landscape is even more difficult now than it was previously, simply because they took the savings from the individual mandate. So the tax bill repealed the individual mandate, saved about $300 billion in doing that. They spent that. 
So now what they're left with is something that's probably no even harder to yeah. resolve. But beyond that, they would also have to use you know, what we call the reconciliation process. To do a reconciliation bill, you have to pass a budget resolution. The budget resolution is your sort of fiscal priorities for the next 10 years. Problem is, is that typically conservative Republicans in the House and to some extent in the Senate demand that the budget resolution balances over 10 years. So after having passed a tax cut, plus the spending that we're likely to see happen, plus just the underlying fiscal situation, which is most of the deficit over the next 10 years, that's a lot of spending cuts to propose in a midterm election year. So my sense is that they just skip the budget resolution entirely, particularly if they work out a spending deal, they'll have those spending numbers anyway. There's no real reason to do it. And just go into the midterm election either having made no additional changes to the ACA or maybe some small tweaks that are bipartisan in nature. Small bipartisan tweaks, I mean, it's certainly a possibility, but even that looks kind of questionable simply because there's not a lot of bipartisan support right now for anything ACA related. One issue that gets a lot of attention and certainly on the public's mind is the dominance of tech in our everyday lives. And it isn't clear what the political ramifications are of that issue and how it might play out. But do you see Washington addressing something like that in the short term? It's not an issue that divides neatly along partisan lines, but politicians increasingly are paying attention to it. I mean, it's one of the most interesting issues just because it's so hard to figure out what category to even put this in. Is it a media regulation issue? Is it an antitrust issue? Is it a national security issue? Is it all of these things? So to me, it feels like this is going to be sort of a slow burn rather than something where all of a sudden we realize that something big is happening. Just because I think it's going to have to address whatever the solution is to whatever problem is identified. And we first have to figure out exactly what the problem is that people think they might have. But whatever the solution is, it feels like it's going to have to take a bunch of different forms for different sets of the issue. In terms of internet commerce, is there an antitrust issue? Is there a pricing issue? In terms of some of the other companies that are maybe a little bit more media-like, is there a media regulation issue, which would be totally separate from the other one? I do think that it's going to be a longer-term discussion that might come in multiple stages. With that said, I will say that if you look at the tax bill, which wouldn't seem to have anything to do with this, but if you look at the tax bill that was just enacted, it's interesting to look at the fact that tech probably came out just about the worst of anybody across the various sectors, just because of the way that they're structured and the way that the tax bill deals with various types of corporate structures, international income, low tax rates, moving income through various jurisdictions, and so on. And so... That might be an interesting early indicator of what you get in that sector when you have Republicans in Congress and a Republican president. Until the last couple of years, as somebody who spent a decent amount of time in Washington covering a bunch of different sectors and all of this stuff, tech was basically just not an issue. It was sort of the non-political sector. There were not many regulatory issues that come up. Sure, they have lobbyists in Washington. They have things that they care about. But it was not a fundamental business issue. It didn't seem like anyway. Now, it seems like it's becoming kind of a more fundamental question. So Washington's always a political town, but it feels particularly political this year because we have midterm elections. Typically, election years are really difficult for any kind of legislative progress, and usually just the must-dos get done. Could the prospect of the GOP losing its majority in the House change that equation? Might the House leaders feel pressure to get some must-do items or critical items passed? 
So I think there are some pieces of legislation which are not necessarily at the top of the list of things that people are talking about, but a little bit further down. One of them is on financial regulation, for instance, a bill that's probably coming through the Senate in the near term. We'll see how the House addresses it. But my guess is in the end, they will probably accept something similar to what the Senate has passed, try to get that done before the midterm election. Outside of that, you know, there are a few other issues that are out there, again, sort of second tier things, smaller issues, very important to some constituencies that could get cleared out ahead of time. The problem is that for every House Republican who thinks that they might lose the midterm election, there's a House Democrat who thinks that they might win the midterm election and is probably, you know, less interested or a Senate Democrat, for that matter, less interested in doing the deal now. In some ways, actually, I think the agenda could change even more significantly if the Senate starts looking like it's really coming into play. There's certainly a chance that Democrats could pick up a very narrow majority in the Senate. I wouldn't say it's the most likely outcome, but there's certainly a chance, and it's something people are talking about. If the prospect of that seems to be rising, I would start looking at all of the nominations. So you would imagine that Majority Leader McConnell will want to clear as many nominations as possible ahead of a change in control. And so I think what could end up happening is if you see a change in control coming, I mean, the House might actually be willing to do a little bit more. The Senate might just be preoccupied with clearing as many nominations as possible. It's hard to project, obviously, but if the Democrats gain control of at least one House of Congress in November, how would the policy outlook change for the second half of President Trump's term? And how might the atmospherics around there change? Probably the most important change would be in a few areas where the president has always been maybe more sympathetic to democratic positions on a few issues. I mean, the two that come up, we already talked about infrastructure, but that's clearly one place where you can certainly imagine a deal on infrastructure happening in a divided Congress with a President Trump. The other one I would think about is actually healthcare, but not so much the ACA, although that could come into it, but more on, as an example, pharmaceutical pricing. Thinking about the market for a second, if we think about all of the different sectors who might be worried about the president following through on his rhetoric, it could be pharma, biotech, et cetera. And that's a place where his rhetoric and his views, at least to the extent that he stated them, are pretty much in line with Democratic positioning on Medicare drug pricing and things like that. I would think of those few areas where there is some real overlap between what the president has said and where congressional Democrats have typically been. In a lot of other areas, you just wouldn't expect that much to happen. And maybe that shouldn't be that surprising anyway. I would generally think that regardless of the midterm election outcome, the most productive year of the president's four-year term will have been the year that just ended. Which is not atypical. Which is not atypical at all. Finally, we've had a discussion about policy as though it takes place in a vacuum, but obviously the president's style gets a lot of attention in the media. Has his rhetoric and the way in which he communicates and uses social media changed how policy gets enacted in Washington, or is that just noise? I mean, I think it has because normally you would expect that when something is laid out, it has been vetted. It has been shared among a lot of different people within the administration who have responsibility for whatever that issue is, and probably even communicated to some folks on the Hill prior to any announcement. This time around, it's obviously different in some cases, where everybody hears about it at the same time through Twitter. It also means that because it's ad hoc, it ends up being more uncertain. 
And so we've seen many examples of something that's been said, which turns out to then be walked back a few days later. One just very recent example of that is if you look at the debate right now over immigration. Senator McConnell said something along the lines of, we could probably get a deal if we actually knew what the president wanted to do. And it's not so much because his general view is not understood. I think it's because it's a moving target. It's always changing because of different things that are being said or coming out. And so I think that has made things more uncertain and more difficult. With that said, if you step back and look at the big things that have happened over the last year, in some ways, it actually followed a pretty predictable path, which is to say you had the administration providing some very high-level guidance on what they wanted. Congress filled in a lot of the details. It was really just the little bumps on the road along the way where you had, for instance, after the House passage of the health care bill, the president coming out and saying he didn't really like the bill after all. You know, But it ultimately, I'm not sure how much it really changed the end result on a lot of these things. Still ends up looking a little bit like the process we learn in civics in grade school. Well, a little uh, bit. Yeah, <laughs> but a lot more atmospherics. Yeah. Alec, we'll see how this all plays out. We'll have you back on the podcast. And we have another inflection point in Washington. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on January 22, 2018. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.